Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast, a podcast where we bring on multifamily investors and discuss real estate and their journeys to financial freedom. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Kerwin Donis. Today's guest is a very good friend of ours. We actually met him in Belize at a Real Estate Guys event. Shannon has a great sense of humor and an even bigger willingness to give back. Shannon Robnett is the CEO of Shannon Robnett Industries, a commercial real estate development company. Shannon has over 25 years of experience in the industry. We can't wait for you to listen to this episode. It's a good one. Here we go. Thank you for tuning in to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partner and brother, Kerwin Donis. Today on the show, we'll be having Shannon Robnett. Shannon, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Hey, guys. Thanks for, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to uh, be on the show, and it was great to meet you guys live before I got to be on the show. Uh, but uh, my name is Shannon Robnett. I am a market for 27 years in my own companies, and uh, I've been here for about 40 years. I've built everything from fire stations, police stations, schools, uh, apartments, industrial, you name it, I've done it, doctor's offices. Uh, and it's just been the last couple of years that we've found that we can provide a lot more value if we focus on doing things for ourselves in our syndicating platforms and uh, just bringing uh, projects, development projects to our partners. So that's kind of what we've been focused on. Awesome. Uh, do you mind kind of going into how you got started? I know you said that you've done all types of asset classes and I assume that's all on the development side. Do you mind kind of going into how you got in, into real estate, what you're doing before or something? Um, yeah, well... Uh, I, I got involved in real estate. At, I mean, my father was a builder. My mother was a, was a realtor, right? So, I mean, I was forced to do that uh, every Saturday. I was, you know, I was working on the job sites with my dad. And I thought, you know what? I don't, I don't like this physical labor. I don't like framing. I don't like, uh, but weird guys. I don't know if you guys have been to college, but you got to show up uh, and you got to take the tests and you got to do all that stuff. Meanwhile, my brother was building houses and uh, I, I was watching him back in 95 as an 18-year-old kid. Uh, he could build three houses a year and he could make, you know, 55, 60 grand. And I was sitting there going to school, going to college, working in a coffee shop, trying to pay my insurance. And I thought, man, this is stupid. I, I, I grew up in this. And so I, I told my dad, I said, dad, I want, I want to build houses like Mike and, and, you know, do that. And my dad said, well, you know, go get tobacco. And I go, no, nah, dad, you know, we can call people, you know, we don't have to do that. And, but really what we did was we built houses. And so we dug the foundations and we poured the concrete. And we hired, my brother and I had two framers that we traded back and forth and we framed the house. And while the guys were building, uh, putting in all the electrical and the HVAC, we'd go build all the cabinets, stain and lacquer all the doors. We'd come back in, we'd install the cabinets. Uh, we'd, you know, hang all the doors. We'd paint it inside and out. I mean, we did everything. And you could build three houses a year like that. And I thought, man, this sucks. This is a lot of work, you know? So I began to kind of step back a little bit and see where I could, I could motivate other people to work for me. I could hire the painter and I could do three houses more or four houses because I was not doing all of that. And I could buy cabinets and I could, you know, so I began to see that. And then I saw that I didn't really like homeowners, you know? So I went into the commercial side of things. I built police stations. I built fire stations. I did that where it wasn't, it wasn't as demanding as the homeowner because people get personally attached to their houses where, you know, when you've got an office building, they want to make sure the door closes, the reception counter doesn't fall over. 
uh, and the elevator works, you know, those are the kind of things that we did. And so I began to see where I could help people on the development side too, because people were coming to me and they were like, Hey, you know, I want you to build this building for me. I got a set of plans, give me a price. And they were over budget. They were way over budget. You know, the architect was like, yeah, and you can have this and then we can have solid granite here and all this stuff. So I began to get involved with people and help them draw the plan so that we stayed on budget and all that kind of stuff. And it just kind of developed from there. And pretty soon people were coming to me going, Hey, I want to build an apartment complex. Do you want to, you want to help me with that? And do you want to be a part of it? And I need to do some industrial and do you want to help me be a part of that? So it just kind of grew into what it is today where, you know, we, we do about $45 million a year in ground up construction. And um, we, you know, are consistently, um, bringing new product to the marketplace and consistently have a pipeline of, of projects going through the city and, and development stuff. And so it's just, it's just kind of grown, you know, it wasn't really, I don't know that I had a plan when I started, but I got a plan now. Now that's awesome. And um, it's interesting to see that you did multiple different things. Um, I assume that just came from having a broad network and, you know, solving different people's problems because they saw that you were someone that could definitely help them with that. But in regards to syndicating, I know that's your, somewhat of your business model today. Why did you start doing that and how did you do your first one? Well, I didn't start out syndicating. I've, I've had uh, general partners that I've had, you know, that, that we've JV'd on stuff, you know, uh, going back 20 years. Um, I worked with my brother on a couple deals. I've worked with some other people on deals. And I built a 180-unit apartment complex with a family office as a JV partner. And um, the that worked great, but the family office uh, – they, the matriarch passed away and the family decided they didn't want to continue as a family office. And so they separated uh, and my funding source dried up. And so I had looked around and I saw, you know, I was lo- looking at other people doing the syndication. And, and what I saw about syndication was that a lot of people with, with no construction experience were able to raise funds based on uh, spreadsheet experience. And I thought, well, I wonder if that works for construction dummies like me, uh, and so I began to put that out there that, hey, I build product and I do this and I've done this for 27 years and it's all I really know. Um, what about partnering with me on that? And I got an overwhelming response that people said, yes, we love that because you've got the experience doing what you're doing. And the fact that you're technically new to syndication wasn't that big of a deal because I'd been building stuff for 20 years. I'd done over $200 million worth of transactions and, and deals. And so, there wasn't really a whole lot of question there. And I'd, I'd, I'd already built a couple of apartment complexes. And so it wasn't really a question of my skill. It was, uh, you know, bringing that element of syndication together. And so uh, the first deal we did was just a 36 unit deal in Nampa. Um, and uh, it was pretty simple. You know, um, it was it, the property appraised for $5.6 million when it was completed and, uh, or sorry, it appraised for six point six million dollars when it was completed and we had a construction budget of 5.6 million so it was really easy to figure out that there was a million dollars to be made there once we built it and stabilized it and we thought you know some of the everybody talks about doing deals quick and and showing that exit and so we looked at it we said well we're just going to build it and stabilize it and then we're going to we're going to sell it and so we we did that we needed to raise 1.5 million dollars and so i raised that money we did the deal 14 months later my partners made about a 32 percent return um, on their IRR. So, you know, annually it was even more than, if you look at the total duration on 14 months, it was even more than that. And they were in and out in 14 months, right? So 
we closed on time. We hit that deal. We hit it hard. Uh, I would love to say that I was the genius behind that, but the market really kind of raised that uh, bar for me because it, rents in the area kept going up and up. And out of that, we've uh, we've now raised over $20 million uh, for different projects. And we're in the process of uh, a couple of hundred units uh, and about 100,000 square feet of industrial space in everything from opportunity zones to just regular flex space. So, Yeah. And as far as the apartment buildings you guys are building, uh, what property class do they tend to be? Are these class A or, or are you guys doing class B at all? Um, well, it, let me just tell you what they are and you can tell me what class they are. They're uh, granite countertops. Uh, they're, you know, um, they're vinyl plank flooring. They're three-story garden style walk-up, brand new pool, spas, 6,000 square foot clubhouses. Uh, I don't know if that's a class B. Uh, it may be in, in, you know, large North Carolina market, but in Idaho, that's kind of a class A. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, uh, it's what we're doing around here. No, definitely class A. Um, and, in regards to how long it takes your investors to get those distributions, it sounds like on that first one, you had a lot of success. Typically, uh, what it was like the average return that you see, I'm not sure if that's typical or not, because you did say that the market helped you. But uh, in, in regards to how long it takes for them to get their distributions as, as well, I'd love to kind of see what, what that is typically, because for multifamily, when we were doing value add, right, we'll go in and buy an already performing asset. Um, we're going to be anywhere at six to you know four months before any investor receives a distribution. Um, so in regards to development, I would love to find out how that kind of differs if, if there's a difference. Well, you know, so let's, let's talk about that, right? So when you talk about value add, you're buying somebody else's cash flow, right? So, um, and, and then you're going to take, uh, you're going to buy the Tropicana and you're going to rebrand it to the three palms and it's going to have new deck chairs by the pool and you're going to repaint it and you're going to recarpet it and you're going to do all that stuff. And, and really, Guys, if you look at that, there's really two kinds of investors, right? There's those that want cash flow and there's those that want appreciation, right? And what happens is in that value add deal, you take and you shove everybody into one pool and you've got the value add guy, guy sitting there right along everybody. And let's, let's take my dad and I, for example, right? My dad's made all the money he's going to make in his lifetime. He's looking for motorhome fuel and dog food, right? Those are the two things he needs in life and him and mama go see the world and it's really easy. But what he has is he's got a, a set amount of cash and he wants cash flow, right? Now that's the far extreme version of cash flow. Then you look at the appreciation guy, guys like you and me, right? That are young. Okay, okay maybe I'm a little bit older than you guys, but let's not tell the audience, okay? But we're, we're dealing with, we've got to grow this pile that we have because the pile that we have isn't big enough that a 7% return is going to let me live the lifestyle I want, right? I mean, I got certain things that I, you know, I got needs, right? I mean, you know, so when I look at that, a lot of people get confused and they go, well, everybody can fit into this value add deal. But the reality is when you buy it, you're buying it at 90 cents on the dollar, maybe maybe 95% you know, of the value of what it's there and you got a deal. But at some point when you've done with your CapEx and you've repositioned it, you're at about 110% of value, right? You've, you've spent extra money on it and you've got it up. And right before you pull the appreciation lever and get that to go up, man, I'm super excited, but my dad is mad right? He's ticked off because this thing now we're at 110% of value. There's no cash distributions coming in. I can't believe I'm in this thing. But then all of a sudden, everything in the plan works out and here comes the rent checks and everybody got raised a hundred bucks. And now everything is good because he's now got those, those mailbox money checks, right? And he's happy and we're going along, but I'm not, right? Because we took that thing from 95%. We bought a deal. We went to 110%, but now we pushed that thing to 130% of what we paid for it. And now 
my appreciation is set right there and now we're going to ride that off into the sunset at about a 3% increase annually as we increase rents and I'm stuck. I'm only making 3% on my investment from there on forward until we get to the next big milestone, which is when we sell it. And then I'm happy again. My dad's pissed off again, right? Deal, but he knows that when he gets in the next deal, he's got to wait for that appreciation to happen, right? I cut those two people up and I, I put them in different groups. I don't let them talk to each other, right? So when we do our ground up stuff, we build stuff with appreciation people, right? So there's no distribution during the deal. 14 to 24 months is what those typically take, but our cycle on that is a 22 to 24% IRR, right? So we're quick hit. That gets you up to where it is stabilized. And then you're getting out of that deal. You're getting into another deal that's going to allow you to appreciate your money without having to be stuck with the 9% or 8% cash on cash. You guys are smart guys, right? You take a 24% return you take the next year at 9%, now you're three years into this deal and you got 24, 24, and nine, what happens to your ROI, right? It just went below 20, right? Do that for seven more years. Now you're, now you got to sell it to get that next hit to get your IR back up, right? Approaches here. One is we got the appreciation. We take it to a stabilized asset and we transact on it and we put it in a fund with a bunch of people that all they want is cash flow. They don't have any appreciation to worry about. And what they're getting is they're getting brand new product, right? So the maintenance is really low. The expenses are super low. The results are really, really, really uh, extremely predictable cash flow because we don't have, oh man, building H just lost its heating unit. We got to replace that. We didn't anticipate that. Uh, we didn't see those, those tree roots growing through the septic system and now we got to replace that. We don't have a lot of those expensive repairs. So, it's really easy to get that predictable cash flow. And then we, the other thing that we can get is we can get 223F financing, uh, which uh, is a hybrid financing that allows for a 35-year amortization at less than 3%, non-recourse, 100% assumable, 85% LTV right? So, my cash flow people dig the snot out of that because it goes on for a long time and our exit windows down the road. So, that's kind of how we do things a little bit different. And so, what I want to do is I, I want to have a conversation with you and go, hey, Jeffrey, what do you guys like? You guys like cash flow or you like appreciation so that we understand what you want most and we can give you that. So, now you start out with your $50,000 investment and you got a 20% return, 22, 24% return for three or four or five years. And now you're in a position to get some cash flow on that that makes sense for you to harvest and be able to live on, right? Long explanation to a short question. I get that. No, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, when it comes to perhaps like at the, you know, I assume your whole period just depends on what project you're doing. But when it comes to actually selling, uh, you mentioned that you guys use a fund and that's what you'll, you'll have those long term. Uh, so, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you buy a value add, you buy somebody else's cash flow, right? Yeah. So, I'll give you an example. I build cost on it, okay? I've got 15, a little over $15 million in equity in that deal, right? In 36 months, I'm going to have it stabilized. My appraisal says that it's stabilization. I'm going to be right about $59 million. I've added $18 million to this deal, right? So, I don't have to wait around for that to come to value add. So, if I take that and I got 22 or 24% growth on that year over year and I come to the end of the project, why collect the, the rent checks when we can cash out and go build another one? Why? Because that's what I do as a builder and a developer. So, of course, I have another one. 
right? As a value add guy, you're waiting on the phone to ring and your realtor to go, hey, remember the Andersons? They finally decided they wanted to sell that one down on 15th Street. Oh, awesome. I just go find another piece of dirt. I've got another one in the pipeline. And so for me, my model is much, much different. But if somebody wants cash flow, what we do is get an appraisal, we look at what the market is, and then we transact where it's mutually beneficial for both parties. We don't charge fees going out. We don't charge fees getting in. There's all kinds of benefits there where everybody's getting top dollar to move on to the next deal and move quickly, right? Because as you guys know, if you get a 12% return, if you make 100 grand on your 100 grand and it takes 48 months, that's not quite as good as making 80 grand on your 100 grand in 30 months, right? Your IRR is probably better on the 30-month deal, especially if you've got another deal to get in right behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. typically, my appreciation deals are, are mid-20s. Uh, we perform them uh, very conservatively. And then my cash-on-cash deals are usually 8.5%, and that's very, very stabilized stuff. Yeah, so when an investor brings up a concern, um, I guess they have this conception that the development tends to be riskier than other types of investment strategies. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, that's funny um, because it is. I hear this a lot, and that's a really great question because Kerwin, a lot of people sit there and they think about what's riskier, and that's why a lot of people buy the value add because they're buying the cash flow, and they think that cash flow is going to save them, Right. But the reality is, as a lot of people learned um, in the Orlando market, right? Uh, they, they bought this thing in October of 19, right? Uh, they were just done with their renovation in February of 20 and COVID hits, right? The Disney World closes down, the place goes flat for two months and they got two months of no rent, right? What are they going to do, right? When I'm in the growth mode and I'm building... I go to the bank and I say, hey, listen, this thing's going to cost me $5.6 million to build. What do you think? And they say, well, how long is it going to take? And I say, well, it's going to take me, you know, 12 months. They say, here's 19 months worth of interest. So, they give me 19 months worth of interest to sit there and make the payments on the money that I borrow, right? They like that because it adds interest to the interest, right? So, now you're paying interest on your interest, but it gives me a longer window and then they give me lease up money. Right. So then they, they, they also look at and they go, okay, so 18 months you're going to be done. And then you're going to take another seven months to stabilize the asset. So I'll tell you what, we're going to give you 22 months worth of, worth of interest. So if I, if I stabilize quicker, I don't pay as much in interest. Right. If it takes me that long, I have the window to do that with. But also, Kerwin, if you look at it, I've got a project that is $42 million to build. Okay. I raised 15. I've got a loan for 29 and a half, right? I think that's right. 29, yeah, roughly, right? I got a loan for about 29 million bucks. With that, I can stabilize that product and actually make my payment at 60% occupancy. So I can do one of two things. I can cut my rent to 60% or I can cut my occupancy to 60% with full rent. But I have options because I control all that value, that $18 million in value that's there at stabilization. I can control that and I can soften that landing if I wind up in a market that has low vacancy or high vacancy, sorry, right? And so I can really control that a lot more than most because when you're buying somebody else's cash flow, the bank looks at it and they say, hey, Kerwin, this thing's worth $10 million because of the income stream going into it. The minute that income stream changes, your value goes down or up. 
But if it goes down, it means you don't have enough to pay back the loan. So what are you going to do? And that's where we saw a lot of people get in trouble with the banks going, whoa, wait a minute. Kerwin, did you talk to Jeffrey about how much interest money we needed? Because I don't panic, right? The last thing you want is your banker to panic. I mean, it sounds like a cheer camp, right? And then all of a sudden you got some real issues, right? And that's really what we ran into. We slid right over the top of it because we were in the building phase. We had interest reserves set aside. And so when people come to me and go, it's riskier, you could be in a place where you have more risk if you're not in a place where you're general contractor and your developer in alignment. And I can talk to you more about how, how you put them in alignment, even if you're not using the developer that is the GC. There's a lot of ways to get alignment so that your team doesn't get out of whack, just like you guys do with syndications where you put everybody that's in alignment and you're all going the same direction. Yeah, yeah kind of expand on that. That would be great. So when you guys start with, when you guys get offered a product, somebody comes to you and they say, hey, Jeffrey, um, I got this deal for sale. Um, and I think it's really under, I mean, you, you go figure out, well, wait a minute, is this realtor really, does he know what he's talking about, right? Because I don't know if it's happened to you, but sometimes realtors don't always tell the truth, right? I don't know. So, what I do is the same thing. When I look at a piece of ground, I don't ask how much the ground is. I go look at the market rents around the area and I find out how much that is. So, then I go back to my property manager and I say, hey, what are the rents in the area? And he comes back in and he says, hey, you know, we can get this much in rent. So, I do the math. I know what the cap rate is. I know how much my plumbing is about seven and a half percent of the total cost of the project. So, when I know what I, my project is worth, I then back out what my investors want, right? Then I go, well, I have $42 million to build this project with. Well, if I have $42 million to build this project with, that means I got three and a half million dollars for the plumber. So, I go to the plumber and I say, hey, guys, I want to build a new project. How about you all come and we build this project and you have $3.6 million to draw the, you don't want to draw the plans, but I need you to be involved so that you keep us on budget from the very beginning, Right? And so now my plumber, because who knows how to plummet the cheapest, the plumber or the engineer? I mean, come on. Plumber, right? yeah. So the electrician, he gets involved. The framer gets involved, right? The structural engineer and the framer are arguing back and forth the best way to put that hip roof together, right? So all said and done, when we get done, we built it per the budget that I had when I started the project. And I knew what I had in there for land to get done in the beginning. So now we don't wind up with situations where we have a general contractor that's trying to build a change order to the developer, right? So the developer and the general contractor are on the same team because they all develop the plans together and everybody knows they're going to make money because they were involved in drawing the plans. So they're not involved in writing the change order and going, hey, your plans are a mess. You're going to have to fix these. And by the way, it just got more expensive. Well, how can you tell me that if you help draw those, right? And then we put those all together. We write a contract that's favorable to everybody to save money. So, the more you save, the higher percentage you get. And what can you do if you start helping on the, on the uh, timeline instead of hurting the timeline? So, and a lot of it has to do with perception. Instead of everybody thinking about all the negative things that could happen and writing the change orders, we get everybody thinking forward and how can we make this thing happen cheaper and faster and get paid more by making it do those things. No, yeah, that's awesome. And it's a lot of great information. Uh, um, and I would kind of want to get into our express round after this because I feel like you're going to have a lot of awesome things to say about that. But Go ahead, man. I really do appreciate you touching on that. It was, it was awesome. So to jump right in, in regards to our first question, uh, what is the biggest mistake that you've made throughout your, you know, your experience in real estate and what did it teach you? Not being you guys, not opening my mind to the possibilities. I mean, seriously, guys. So 
I'm, I'm 48 years old. Everything I've done, I've done on my own, right? I've always felt, and this is a self-imposed feeling, I've always felt that as a business owner, as a general contractor, I could never knock on the door and ask somebody else how they did it. Well, that's not true with multifamily, right? I mean, as you guys know, I mean, we're sitting here giving up juicy secrets back and forth on the internet live, right? I mean, this, this is not really a NATO secret anymore and more than willing to help other people, but that's not the way I grew up. And so, I didn't ask the questions you guys are asking, right? I was 20, 20 years old and I was, I was sworn to secrecy on what I was doing. So, was everybody else. So, I was an island unto myself. I was not taking as much time to educate myself as you guys are, right? I wasn't asking the people with 20 years of experience, how did you do it? I wasn't spending the kind of money I watched you guys spend to go be hanging around with 200 other people that have done this before. I never did those things. I always thought that I was the end all be all. And when I had that thought process, I felt like out on years of opportunity where I could have been a lot farther down the road if I'd have been like you guys and just been an open book and go, hey, what, what could I learn from you? No, yeah, I really do appreciate that. Um, Second question, do you, I'm not sure, you look like a reader, but uh, do you have like a favorite book and maybe you can tie one into your business life as well as your personal life? Um, you know, I, I read quite a few books. In fact, I've got a book club uh, where I encourage my, the, my employees to read. Uh, if they read all 13 books every year, I give them a little over five grand. It's a, I give you a dollar for the first book and I double it for every book you read. So, I'll give you two bucks for the second book, four bucks, you know, eight bucks. So, I don't owe a lot of people a lot of money, but the ones that take me up on the deal, I, I, there's no way I'm getting them for, you know, 1200 bucks. They, they go all in. I, I, I got to pay them the full uh, $5,400 or whatever it is. But, um, you know, one of the good ones that I've, that I've read lately um, is, uh, you know, Tony Robbins, Money Master the Game, a couple of those. Um, and, and they're just great books. And I, I think that, you know, I try to read at least two books a month um, just because, information is powerful, right? I mean, everybody's got a different, I, 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 I haven't read a book yet that I haven't come away with something that says, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way, right? Somebody's thinking about it a different way that helps you build a better mousetrap, or at least when somebody else really smart, like you guys, comes to me and says, hey, have you read this book right here? I could go, uh, yeah, actually I have, and then I can interact with you guys on a level that I learned something else. That's awesome. I've never heard of anyone do it like that in that concept with their employees. That's awesome. Um, they're, they're yeah, but here's the thing. Why wouldn't yeah. you? Because if you have a smarter employee, mm-hmm. they're working smarter for you, not harder, right? We all understand. You guys understand this. That's why at your age, you're doing what you're doing because you understand it's, it, you don't have to go out there and bang boards. You don't have to go out there and dig ditches. That's not what's going to make you money. What's going to make you money is multiplying your talents and being able to multitask in multiple fields and no more, more things. That's what's going to make you guys money. So, if I can get my employees to learn those things and become more valuable employees, guess what? I'm going to pay them more. Guess what? They're going to work harder. Guess what? Everybody wins. It boggles my mind why more people don't do it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Third question. Do you have a daily habit that you would accredit some of your success to? I got to tell you, the one thing that you have to do every single day is wake up. Because if you don't, it doesn't matter. Your success is over, right? Um, (laughs) You know, I, I think controlling uh, your attitude, right? So, I'm a pilot and, and one of the phrases that we use in, in flight training is your attitude affects your altitude, right? So, if you're nose down, you're headed for the floor. 
And it doesn't matter what happens. You guys can secure a new deal. You got some more funding coming your way and it's not going well. But if you're always looking at how, how good it is, I mean, and that's probably very, really easy for you guys when you look around and you look in comparison that, hey man, we could be flipping burgers or we could be going to college like the rest of our friends or we could be doing some of these other things. But, but your attitude really affects your altitude. It affects how high you're going to go. It affects who you're around. It affects how you, how you get through life because you can have the same thing happen to a positive person and a negative person. One thinks the world's ending and one thinks it's the beginning of a brand new chapter that's going to launch them into the stratosphere. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and my fourth question will kind of tie into what you've already said. You've dropped a lot of good advice, but if you had one piece of advice that you could give someone or maybe that you've received that has helped you the most, what would that be? You know, don't be afraid to ask the question. I mean, you know, it, and so many people are afraid of no, you know, everybody's afraid that they wouldn't want to tell me, but you know, Actually, it makes me feel pretty good when I can impart some wisdom to, to somebody else. And you know what makes me feel even better is when they actually put it into practice and it works, right? And I, I try not to act surprised like, oh, wow, that actually worked, right? But, but the reality is, you know, for me, it's, it's being of use. It's being of service and not, being, not accepting no for an answer allows me to say, hey, guys, I mean, I, how, how many times did I have to ask to be on the show? Like seven, eight? I didn't take no. I kept asking, man, because that's the reality. If you, if you learn to take no and you're able to work through that and not adjust your goal, just adjust how you're going to get there, you're still going to get there. No, nobody and nothing is going to stop you. And that's what you're here for is for your why to get you to your goal, right? Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, and to top it off, if someone in our audience wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, I made it really simple because I had to remember it. But you just go to shannonrobnet.com. You can find me on LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever, Facebook. Uh, but yeah, just shannonrobnet.com and we can connect there. I'd love to have a conversation and chat. I'd love to talk with your listeners about, you know, more about development. If they want to know more, anything like that, more than happy. Awesome, Shannon. We really do appreciate your time. This was an awesome interview. I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, thanks so much yeah, for all the value. I just want to say thanks again for you guys uh, letting me be a part of your show. I mean, I... I got to know you guys first, but man, you're, I've been listening to some of your podcast episodes and they're, they're, they're awesome. You guys are doing some great stuff. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching you guys over the next 10 years and uh, watching you guys just absolutely shoot for the stars and hit them. Thanks so much. We appreciate that. Thanks for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show while you're at it if you got value from this episode we'd appreciate a good rating on apple podcasts or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would help us out too be sure to tune into our next episode until next time take care guys